0: Good morning, Bokir Tov. We have the privilege of, uh, of studying Parsha Shlach together this morning. As always, we'll give an overview of the Parsha and then we'll delve into our specific psukim together. Parsha begins famously with the command to go uh, investigate the land. It's recording. We, uh, we used to have a member, Norman Mordkovsky. all of us, Shalom, who passed away every year. Parsha Shlach, he would remind me that there is no English word to spy out land. An abuse of the English language. You investigate land. It's always in, in my head, his, uh, his voice. So, Shlachlocha Anashim vi Asuru as Eretz is not to go spy out the land, but rather Moshe instructed to send the men. These were not ordinary men, as we'll see, these were men of great distinction, men of greatness. These were Anashim who were tzadikim, these were the nasiim. these were the leaders, which makes their failure, their egregious mistake, their error in judgment. All the more perplexing. How could such great people of great wisdom, of great knowledge, of great Torah? How could they miscalculate so badly? A miscalculation which has been memorialized in perpetuity. We experience it every year with Tishabav, and to a degree we continue to struggle from it. So the suru Esserat's Kanan they're sent to investigate the land that I'm giving Isha avosav Nasi Bahem. Again, these were not ordinary men. These weren't schleppers. These weren't the greatest military men. These were the righteous, the tzaddikim. As if Hashem in the 20th century said to the Rav and Rav Moshe and the Bavitcher Rebbe and Rav Huttner and Rav Ruderman and the list could go on. Twelve of you I'm sending to Israel. I've made you the promise. I'm giving it to you. It's a no-brainer. It's easy. It's simple. I'm handing it to you. You'll be successful. You'll conquer it. You'll inhabit it. But it's a concession to the people. They like a little advanced mission to be able to come back Knew. What's the hotel like before we sign up for Pesach? Has anyone checked out the room? Does anyone know the buffet, the caterer? Will it be good? So the Jewish people, even good news, they can't accept without someone checking it out a little bit. So you know, check it out, you'll come back. When the people come back, you see their first mistake. They start to report on things that no one ever told them to look at. Whether it's Shemina, Raza, what's the nature of the land, and, uh, and so on. So Moshe sends them, and the point was just to come back, and validate just to affirm the land's great. No brainer, Shem's gonna take us, it's great. This is our homeland. It's what we've been waiting for. It's why he took us out of Mitzrayim. Let's go. He sends sends them anashim Yisrael Hema. The text goes out of its way multiple times to tell us, not ordinary men. These were leaders of great esteem. Leaders of incredible of incredible merit. And then lists, in fact, the names. Elish and Hashem. Moshe sends them. Yoshua gets a name change. Why does Yoshua get a name change? Rashi quotes, ka spare you from the of the That's kind of perplexing. Both the name change given to Yoshua and where did he get the Yud? Yeshua? Who dropped the Yud? Sarah dropped the Yid, Yeshua picked it up. What's the deeper meaning of that for another time? So he sends them to go investigate the land and to see, to see the land, what is it? Are they many? Are they few? And what's the land like? Is it good? Is it bad? And is it fertile? Is it lean? And what does the land look like? Hashmina imraza. Someone told me on Shabbos that in dating, they once heard a... It's terrible. They wanted to know about the proposed shirach. imraza. Hayesh That was before pictures. Now you just demand the picture and you know the answer yourself. Hayesh priya It was all about the nature of the land, the nature of the fruit, not the military stations. Not where they were. Not where they were. The... Um, i love to quote later in Sefer Dvarim, it says that Moshe sent them to find out the Dvar. Rashi says, Aza Lashon Medabrim. Why were they sent? Don't look at the military installations. Don't assess what kind of weapons, capability, capacity they have. You're going, why? To listen. Listen. Eiza Lashon Medabrim. The Ma'aral there in Azgurayi wonders, Aza Lashon medabrim. Who cares? You really care? Spanish, French, English, Hebrew, Yiddish... Who cares what language they're speaking? So the man says, no, not what language as in which language. Listen to what they're speaking about. You want to know about someone, listen to what they speak about. Listen to what they choose to speak about. Famous Eleanor Roosevelt quote, that I love. Do so they speak about things, people, or ideas, right? Great people talk about ideas, average people talk about things, small people talk about people. So go listen, You want to know everything about your potential enemy, your adversary? You want to understand who they are, what they're about, what makes them tick? What we choose to speak about, says everything about us. So Moshe sends them for this purpose to investigate. It's interesting, the language he uses is, mahi. Where do we see? The beginning of the Parsha, the end of the Parsha. We've spoken about this at length in the past. I saw, I looked online on Torah. I have like five or six or seven shiurim on shlach. So we've talked about a lot of these things already. We're going to get into a new section together this morning. But previously we developed the idea that the beginning of the Parsha and the end of the, most of the things I repeat from others. This was one of my very few novel ideas, so I'm proud of it. The beginning of the Parsha and the end of the Parsha have a lot of symmetry, there's a lot of parallel. The beginning of the Parsha, the mission is lasur, Es uri isem, and the end of the parsha is tzitzis, and what's included in the mitzvah of tzitzis? Uri velo sasuru, the exact same words. The beginning of the parsha in the mandate to the meraglim, in the mission to go investigate, and the same words at the end of the parsha in which we're told to wear tzitzis. I'll tell you the upshot. Since I told you I like this Torah. I think I would humbly suggest that what's the parallel? Why are we using the same language? What's the connection between the beginning and the end? So at the end of the parashah, we're given the mitzvah of tzitzis. We're given the mitzvah of tzitzis. We tie strings. One of them is blue. Tchelas. Should we be wearing them? Not wearing them? It's a whole separate discussion. Shechter wears them. Shechter quoted that Rav Yashev said that these tchelas are the real tchelas and should be worn. So why didn't Rav Yashav Zata wear the tchelas? Because he asked those who produce it how many they can produce at a time. And when they were answered, several thousand, he said, I can't wear them. So they asked, why not? He said, because you can't, if I put on a pair of tzitzis and the Jewish newspaper has one picture of me wearing the tzitzis, so the whole Haredi world is going to want to go buy tzitzis. But you can't provide enough. So the supply will be much less than the demand. The price of tzitzis will go through the roof. And we can't do that to the mitzvah, to those who are already wearing it or want to wear it. So he says, Rav Yoshev really held of the tchelas, but didn't wear them for that, for that technical reason because people who couldn't afford would spend money they couldn't afford because the price would be so driven up. But anyway, we wear the tchelas, we wear the blue string and the white string. Rashi quotes the Gemara that says, why the blue and the white? The contrast is supposed to remind us of something. We see that turquoise, that blue, it reminds us of the ocean, the sea. And when you look at the sea, the ocean, it reminds you of, in fact, it meets where the ocean meets the sky, where the ocean reminds you, the blue of the ocean reminds you of the sky. And when you see that sky, not the sky the way it's been in Florida for the last month, or I was in New York yesterday for the day, the way it is in New York most of the year. Sorry, New Yorkers. But the sky, the way it is, uh, parts of it today, the royal blue, the deep blue, the beautiful shades of blue. So you look at the ocean, it reminds you of the sky. You look at the sky and it reminds you of... The kise reminds you of the heavens and it reminds you when you start to think about contemplate the heavens you think about God's throne of glory. So you look at the tzitzis and you realize what starts at looking at some twisted wool ends with you contemplating the heavens and the throne of the almighty himself. What does tzitzis mandate? What does it obligate you to employ? The power of The power of your imagination. The power of imagery, the power of your imagination. Don't see things as they are. Don't look at the blue and white strings and only see wool. Don't just see strings. But employ the power of your imagination. And now picture the ocean, and picture the heavens, and picture the Kisiyach Kavod. That's Ure'isimoso. A Jew looks differently than anyone else. A Jew doesn't see only what's before them. A Jew has the power of the imagination and the power of vision to picture not only what is, but what could be. And that's what Hashem was telling them. Look at the tzitzis, but don't see strings. See the kiseh kavod. Look at the land, but don't see giants. See a homeland. See the fulfillment of a promise. See the destination of a journey. They were to have used their imagination. Don't just see what's on the surface? If we throughout our history would have only looked at what was, we would never be today. Inquisition and the Crusades and the pogroms and the oppression and the expulsions and the Holocaust. Would we ever have arrived at today if all our ancestors ever saw was what was in front of them? If they had to report on the threats that they faced, who would have the courage to overcome, to endure? We're only here because of our collective power of our imagination. And I think that's the beginning and the end of the Parsha. Don't follow the maraglim. Don't just see what's right in front of you. The same word. But rather, look at your tzitzis and use your imagination. And that's what they were supposed to have done. That was their failure. The failure to use imagery, to use the imagination, to employ vision, to see what will be, not only what is. I'll tell you a word already for five months from now. But for Sukkot, the Daladminim we take, and the Daladminim, the four species correspond with many things, but one of the suggestions made is they correspond with different organs of the body. So the Lulav is the spine. Have a backbone, have a spine, stand up for something. And the Esrog is a heart. Have a heart. And the Aravos are our lips. The willows and the hadassim are. Now it all works out. We have one spine. It's one lulav. We have one heart, four chambers, but one heart. The esrog. We have two lips. There's two aravos. What's the only question? Why? Three, three hadassim. Why do we have three hadassim when we have two eyes? Three hadassim. We only have two eyes. What's the third hadas? It's exactly this. Urisim osam. It's that the Jew has a third eye. We have two eyes. We see what's right in front of us. We're realists. We're pragmatists. We're able to overcome what we need to. The Stockdale Paradox, I spoke about this past Shabbos. What did I speak about this past Shabbos? What parsha was it? Baloscha. What did I speak about? Was anyone there? Stockdale Paradox, why did I speak about that? I spoke about Parsha's Baaloscha, Torah, Spelling Bee, the Chalant, Nonchalant, Nonchalant. Everyone always remembers the joke, the story... Nobody, nobody, including me, including me. It's already Tuesday. Remembers what I spoke about. You're in the right group. Oh You're right. Miriam. oh, why we have a mitzvah to remember the episode of Miriam. I'm in the right group. Yeah, we. Um, why we have a mitzvah to remember the episode of Miriam? And the Chavaz Chaim gave a reason. The Rav based on Rav Kook gave a reason, and I suggested the reason is we remember that Miriam. The quoting the Gemara and Sota, she waited for Moshe. We waited for her. The Jewish capacity to wait, but not just to wait but to wait with a sense of hope, a sense of vision, a sense of optimism. And the Stockdale paradox that Jim Collins spoke about where on the one hand, Stockdale was a, was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for eight years. And when he described how he survived when others didn't, he said the optimists died. They were sure they were gonna go free by this date. When it came and went, the next date. And it came and went the next date and then they died of a broken heart. They were optimists. They believed in something because they wished it were true even though there was no evidence it would be true. And therefore, they failed to take care of what they needed to in the moment they died. He said, the Stockdale paradox, what he coined this phrase, is that you have to find that balance between being a realist and a pragmatist, living in the moment, bless you, confronting whatever, whatever comes your way, but never losing your hope, never losing your vision, never losing your belief in where it's going to go, both at the same time. That's why we have three eyes. Two eyes on the here and now, what do we need to overcome, what do we need to endure, but We have that third eye. The third eye is that sense of vision, where we're going and how we're going to get there and the belief that we're going to get there. The belief we're going to get there. That everything is going to be okay in the end, because if it's not okay, it's not yet the end. That was how I ended the drasha. They say it's a quote from John Lennon, but when I researched it, Lennon took it from some Brazilian poet who said it in Spanish, and I researched that and he quoted it from someone else. By the time I was done, I decided I made it up. (laughs) It's so unclear where it came from, so I don't like to. I always omro. I don't like to. Uh, I, always, I, don't like to uh, I don't like to steal from other people, but it's unclear who said it. So, you could say it's a Zohar somewhere. Um, it's a Medrash somewhere. So that's the beginning and the end of the parsha. Losasuru, lasuris velosasuru, and urisam esaratz mahi, urisam aso. We look at the. We look at the tzitzis. That was their mission. But we know they failed in their mission terribly. Now, by the way, it says, chevron they came up from the south, they came to Chevron, v'sham achiman, sheshai Vitalmai, and there were these great giants there who, who uh, greeted them. Chevron was built seven years before. This was, so the parsha tells us that, uh, Rashi rather quotes the Gemara and Sota that all the spies entered from the south, but... But the Torah continues in the singular because there was only one spy who arrived in Hebron. They all came up through the south. They headed one way. One spy actually made it to Hebron. Who made it to Hebron? Kalev made it to Hebron. He detoured to Hebron. Why? The Hebron winery. No. Why did he go to Hebron? Mara machpela Why does anyone go to Hebron? Mara machpela To visit the Babi and the Zaydis. To visit our great-grandparents. That's why you go to Hebron. So he went to Godav and Amar Samach, Pela, in order to invoke their merit that he would have the resolve, the resiliency to overcome the urge or the pressure, the peer pressure to join the Meraglim. Who sent him there? <coughs> Moshe. So Moshe changes Hoshea's name to Yoshua in anticipation so that he will have, the Yud will give him God's strength Godspeed, I don't even know what that means, but it probably came from us. He will have Hashem's strength in order to do the right thing. And Kalev goes to Hebron for the same reason. And in fact, those two then are the only spies. There's so many questions you could ask on this. If Moshe knew it was going to go wrong, why didn't he abort the mission? A. B, if he knew that they would be tempted to report negatively, why does he only save Yoshua and Kalev by giving them merits? Why does not he take all 12? Go visit the kever of the Rebbe, go stop in Crown Heights, go stop in Marzal pela go put a Kfitel over here. Why didn't he give merit to all of them? Why only two of them? But most of all, why doesn't he tell Yeshua and Kalev, don't go? Or, lastly, if he knows that Yeshua and Kalev are going to be tempted, why do they need extra merit? This is the biggest question. Revolve asked this question. If he knows that Yeshua and Kalev are going to be vulnerable to be persuaded by the negativity of the others, just tell them, stay strong. When it's time to report, don't go with them. Why do you have to go to Chevron? Why do you have to change your name? Just stay strong. You hear? All good questions. So Revolve answers the last question with a very powerful insight. And he says, you know, there's two stages to doing the right thing. The first is to recognize the right thing from the wrong thing. And the second is to have the strength to stand by the right thing. So yeah, Moshe knew in advance that Yeshua and Kalev were going to be vulnerable. He didn't do it for the rest of the spies because they had made up their mind. We're going to get to that vort soon. They had already made up their mind even before they left. So he knew it was too late to persuade them. But these two, Yoshua and Kalev, they could still stand by their principles. They could still stand true. They could still stand tall. Aye, why did Moshe just tell them? When it comes time, just don't, don't join them. Why does he have to actually take action for them? Changing a name and going to Chevron? Because even when you know what the right thing is to do, when you're about to confront tremendous pressure to do the wrong thing, there needs to be some change in you to give you the strength to do the right thing. Had he remained Hosea, he might have gone along with them. He had to be, you know, the guy who from out, and now he's going by his Hebrew name, and he's got a new name, Yeshua. And the fact that he's got a new name, Yeshua, that gave him the strength, the willingness to be different. Kali, if everybody else went that way, he said, I'll rejoin the group, I got to make a stop. I, where are you going? You think you're better than us, different than us, cooler than us? You think you can't join us, where are you going? I have to make a stop. The fact that he differentiated himself gave him the strength to differentiate himself later. Sometimes when we can anticipate that we'll be in a situation where there'll be amazing peer pressure to have us do the wrong thing, the first step is identifying it as the wrong thing, but we still remain vulnerable. Even when we know it's the wrong thing, we're still vulnerable. So we have to take action. We have to do something that distinguishes, differentiates ourselves, so that we know we'll have the courage to do the right thing, to do the right thing later. Good. Let's keep going, Amir Pasha. Oh, there's so much to talk about. Even with so much we've spoken about already. Okay, they come back. We know they report negatively. And they instill this tremendous fear. Not Kalev. What does Kalev say? Because he had gone to Hebron. So he had the strength. And what does Kalev say? Alona na'aleh v'yarashnu osa ki achol Kalev comes back. He shouts down the rest of the Miraglim, And he says, Don't listen. We can surely go. Alona Allah. We're making aliyah. Nefesh ben we're going. We are we're going to inherit the land because we can. It's a beautiful Rashi here. Rashi says, "Allo naale." Zucked Rashi. Allo naale. Afilu b'shamayim. V'omer asu sulamas v'alusham natsliyah b'cholder. Allo naale. You know, for us, all it takes is an airplane, an airplane ride. For them it was much harder. Kalev says, we're going up. But you know what? Even if we were asked to climb to the heavens, we're going to take a ladder and we're going up to the heavens. This is within our reach. It's within our grasp. We can do it. Alo na'ala, emuna, bitachon, spirituality. Hashem has a mission. Hashem has a plan. Hashem loves us. He's giving us a gift. And if you start with the premise that He's giving us a gift, it means we have the power, the grip, to be able to receive that gift. Mm -hmm. And even when the gift is difficult, and even if it takes sacrifice, and even if it takes selflessness, but it is a gift, and good things come to those who wait. Ask every woman who's given birth nine months of pain and discomfort, of contractions, of labor, of birth, for the greatest gift, the greatest pleasure, those who want should be Zohar, to have children and experience it themselves. That we know in life, agra, according to the pain is the gain. So Khalif says, will it be hard? Maybe. Will it be challenging? Probably. But it's a gift. We're given a promise of what it is on the other side. Alo ale It is well worth it. We're going up, even if we have to climb up to the heavens. Climb up to the heavens that spirituality is possible. And writes Rabbi Salavitchik on this, Chazal say, that three gifts have been given to the Jewish people. Torah, Eretz Yisrael, and Olam Haba. It's and But, even though these three gifts are given to us, how are they acquired? Their nicknames, they are acquired, be Yisurin. They're not easy. Not easy. Three Yisurin. Just thinking about this. Two weeks ago when I went to Israel, and the guy next to me took up his seat and half of my seat, and the guy in front of me pushed his chair back on me. He said, Oh, it's Yisrael nicknames, be Yisurin. Halavai, Halavai, those should be the Yisurin. Halavai. So all three of these are gifts that are promised to us, but the Gemara Chazal already predict that the way they are acquired is dafka through yesur and is through effort. God rewards a person in accordance with his effort. A person appreciates something in proportion to the level of hardship he had to undergo to achieve it. To create the eternal bond between spiritual values and the Jew, you had to work for it, to experience pain. You can't begin to compare somebody who worked hard and gave up hours And energy and life to to have that car or that home or that possession. And the person is born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they just had an endless bank account and they bought whatever they want. I don't remember the context. I spoke about this recently and I described that someone I know who there was a watch they wanted very badly. So they put a picture of their watch, this watch, on their computer screen at work and on their mirror in their bathroom and next to their bed in their bedroom. And they were driven to work hard that if they met certain goals in their income, they would buy themselves that watch. And I promise you he wears that watch and every time he checks what time it is he has such nachas and such pride and such joy such nostalgia for how hard he worked such pride in having earned it and achieved the goal that he had set all on that watch on his wrist in his wrist is that feeling is the feeling of accomplishment and achievement the feeling of success the feeling of Hashem's support to help him get to where he wanted to go as opposed to some wealthy person who has a drawer full of watches and just slapped that watch on that day and doesn't think twice when he checks the time on it. And the watch means nothing and if it broke or got lost, eh, they'll buy another. They'll buy another. The harder we work for something, the more we appreciate it. And that's why by design, if you say these are three gifts from Hashem, the Torah, HaKadoshah, and Eretz Israel and Olam Haba, so if Hashem loves us, just give it to us. But we as parents know that the gifts we give our kids that are unearned are less appreciated than that which, if you do this on a test, if you get this done, if you do this for your summer, if you fulfill these chores, you'll get this, oh, that which you worked hard for, it is such a special, more special place. Holiness has one source, writes Rabbi Soloveitchik. Holiness has one source, you know what it is? Sacrifice. Holiness and sacrifice, both literally and figuratively, are fundamentally the same concept. Holiness can only be created through self-sacrifice, pain, effort, and exertion. If a person does not anticipate and struggle, holiness cannot come into being. Ein kedusha b'li There is no holiness without effort, without work, without preparation. Shabbos is not Shabbos. If you didn't have an Arab Shabbos, you can't stumble into Shabbos. If you didn't prepare a Dvar Torah, and prepare to set the table, and prepare to cook the meal, and prepare to have clean Shabbos clothing, and prepare who your guests will be, you just don't stumble and trip into Shabbos and think you're going to find sanctity. Whatever you want that's holy needs you to work. Marriage is called Kedushin. And it's the area of life that takes work. It takes work. It's a generation, our generation, our society today doesn't believe this. Whatever makes you happy, it's supposed to come easy. If it's inconvenient, if it's uncomfortable, ditch it, move on. Don't stick with it, replace it. Everything is replaceable, disposable, your car lease, your new home, and your spouse, and your, you just replace disposable. And that's why there's a struggle, because there's an emptiness, because there's no holiness. Because holiness is the result of work, of effort, of planning, of sacrifice, of sacrifice. People don't want to sacrifice anymore. They don't want to sacrifice in any area. Caducian marriage, takes work. It's called caducian. If you want holiness in marriage, you got to work at it you got to work at it. It's a process. It's a journey. That the existence of the state of Israel is a miracle, writes the Rav, is beyond doubt. At the same time, it's a miracle that came at great cost. At Israel's very inception, the first night of the state of Israel's existence, bombs were dropped on Tel Aviv. Subsequently, in the years since it has become into being, the relationship of world Jewry to the state of Israel has been like the relationship of a mother to her only child, saturated with trembling fear and insecurity. Insecurity because one is never sure if a passenger bus will be attacked. One is never certain if a small fishing vessel in the Gulf of Aqaba will be fired upon. A mother whose son is stationed only a few miles from her home is never sure if he will not become the next victim of Arab snipers. Why is the suffering that has accompanied the entire history of the state of Israel necessary? Because the state of Israel involves holiness. And holiness only exists if man... Through sacrifice becomes a partner with Hashem. The paradigm of this partnership is the mitzvah of bris, to which the prophet refers. Chayi, the blood and suffering allow us to merit the continued existence of Medina Sisrael. We experience this on certain period in our history because our very insecurity is a sign that Hashem indeed desires the state of Israel. If He did not, the birth and the subsequent building of the state would have proceeded smoothly. In other words, whatever comes easily is mundane, is profane. It doesn't have holiness. The fact that it took hard work, the fact that it takes effort, is evidence of the potential for holiness within it, and evidence it's a gift from Hashem. If it's handed to you on a silver platter, if it comes too easily, double-check whether it's what Hashem really wants. Jewish history is on a zigzag trajectory. Avram was repeatedly promised a child by God, and yet had to wait many long years for Yitzchak's birth, ultimately to be commanded to sacrifice him. Moshe had to wait atop a cold mountain for 40 days, until God revealed Himself with the message of Israel's forgiveness. The suffering, the worry, the uncertainty is precisely what Hashem desires of us. Of us. Eretz Israel niknes bi So even this process itself was something. The first acquisition of Eretz Israel to begin with, through this episode of the Meraglim, fast forward thousands of years until today, it continues to be the result of, of hard work and of effort. So Kalev says, Alona Allah. We can do it. It's a gift from Hashem, but Allah, we have to work for it. We have to work for it. We have to be willing to sacrifice. The people have a national hysteria. They cry the whole night. Hashem says, You cried for nothing. You're going to cry forever. You're going to cry for generations and generations to come. The people couldn't be placated, they couldn't be appeased. Shem says, I'm going to destroy you all, you ungrateful, incorrigible, miserable, low-life, negative, ice varf people. What am I going to do with you? I saved you. I took you out of Egypt. I interfered with the laws of nature. I took care of you in the desert. And I gave you a protective clouds of glory. You didn't need an army. And I gave you food and I gave you dry. I did everything for you. I've done absolutely everything to get you to this day. And now I told you this is what we need to do. And you're doubting me? And I'm doing this for you. And I have to fight with you for it? You ungrateful, incorrigible people? Forget it. It's over. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So Moshe turns to Hashem and begs him. And what is the source of Moshe's argument? What does Moshe say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that gets him to agree that appeases Hashem? It's a brilliant formula. It's a a formula that we've repeated since then. It's a very compelling argument. Hashem is ready to destroy And Moshe puts forth this very compelling argument, so compelling that it in fact persuades Hashem. How is Hashem persuaded? You can listen online, we spoke about that in a previous year. Hashem forgives them, but He decrees 40 years in the desert, and this is the part we're going to study together momentarily, where He spells out exactly what the decree is and why. When the people hear it, now they say, Oh, okay, fine, we can do it, never mind, never mind, fine. And, uh, and then it's realized it's too late. It's too late. You can't come back at this point. And then the Torah, very bizarrely, if you're looking at the succession or the theme, the continuity of the Parsha, it's somewhat bizarre. Right? With the whole episode of the Meraglim is the first half of the Parsha. This narrative. And then the Parsha ends with three seemingly random, disconnected mitzvos. What are they? First, the libations, that when korbanos are offered, they're offered with a wine libation, Libation is a fancy word for saying that you pour some of it on the altar together with the sacrifice or coordinated with the sacrifice. There's a wine libation, there's a water libation on sukkahs, mitzvah number one. Mitzvah number two is challah, the obligation that when you're making challah, you have to take off a portion of it. You give it to the Kohen. Today we don't give it to a Kohen. It's the only mitzvah that's connected to the land, which applies even outside the land. Challah applies in Chutz L'Aretz as well, outside the land of Israel as well. Why don't we give it to the Kohen today? That's not why. We don't give it to the Kohen today. No offense to Kohanim. Because how sure are we that you're a Kohen? Talking about a mitzvah del reysa, how, how do we know that you're in fact a Kohen? So because there's some doubt within the yichus, the, the uh, status, we burn it in the oven. We, uh, we get rid of it. Are there other methods you could get rid of it? Big discussion among the poskim. Reishus ariso Sechem, The first of your, of your dough. So the mitzvah of challah. And then the Torah ends, the parsha ends rather, with the mitzvah of, with the mitzvah of, of uh, tzitzis. Mitzvah of tzitzis. What, what connection is there between these three things? And we're interrupted for the story of the mikoshi yetzim. Discussed that in the past also. The holy sinner. He's known as the holy sinner. How could you be a holy sinner? Who is the mikoshi yetzim? The Gemara says it was slavchad. When Benoslav Chatzai, our father died in the Midbar, he was the one, what was exactly the Malachi he was doing, according to most opinions. He was gathering wood, he was violating one of the 39 categories of forbidden creative labor on Shabbos. He was the first. Gemara says he did it on purpose. Why? He was willing to take one for the team. He knew the consequence, but he was trying to model for the people that this. they mean business. This is serious. You violate Shabbos, that's it. You're going to get it. Shabbos is... Very significant. It's a whole story worth investigating. Again, you could listen online. We did previously. And then you have the of tzitzit. So what do the wine libations, challah, and tzitzit have to do with the story of the maraglan? What do they have to do with the story of the maraglan? So in order to answer that, you have to actually understand the story of the maraglan. What went wrong here? And again, we've discussed this also in the past. I'm not going to tell you at length, but you need to understand it before we go into before we go into the section we're going to study together. What, what went wrong for the Meraglam? These were the Nasim. I said before, Rav Moshe and the Rebbe and the Rav, and Rav Hutner and Rav Ruderman and other great Rav. go to the 20th century, any century, take an hour time. The greatest Rashi Yeshiva, the greatest poskim, the greatest Sadiqim, the greatest Hasidim, the Lamed Vav, the, those who are revealed, those who are hidden, and you send them on this mission and they failed so miserably, so miserably. The Torah depicts them as villains, villains who destroyed our destiny. Forty years we wandered in the Midbar. Whole generation died there. And we continue Tisha B'Av every year. The ninth of Av was designated inauspiciously on our calendar as a day of suffering. And it's been revisited throughout our history. Terrible, terrible events have happened in fulfillment of God's promise. You cried for no reason, I'll give you a reason to cry. So how could they have miscalculated so badly? So many say this, but Rav Golvacht really said it. Rav Goldvert Rav Chaim Yaakov Goldvecht, the Rosh Shiva of Kerem B'Yavna, my Rosh Hashiva, he said it uh, very beautifully, and uh, it appears in his sfarim. The Zohar says that these uh, Rosh Ida, these heads of the tribes, what drove them to give this negative report? They didn't want to go into Israel. Even before they ever stepped foot on this investi- investigation, on this journey, even before they ever embarked, they had already come to their conclusion. And what was their conclusion? This is a bad idea. We've got to stay in the desert. And why did they want to stay in the desert? So the Zohar, and Rashi also alludes to this, the simple understanding, which Rav Govach says is inaccurate, but the simple understanding is they were big shots. They had a big role. They were the elected, they were the officers of the shul, they were the executive board. And they were going to go in today. There's only going to be new elections. And no one wants to lose their position of power, their position of fame, their position of distinction. So they said, you know what? We'll concoct a whole explanation for why we need to continue one more term. After our term, eh. When we're gone, the next generation can go in. But we're the executive board. We're the head of the HOA. We're the, we're the leaders. We don't want to give it up. We don't want to give it up. Cesar of Govecht, are you telling me that the Russia Yeshiva, the tzaddikim, the gaonim, the chassidim, the nasiim these incredibly righteous people would have been so egotistical that they would have insisted on holding on to their power. That's what's going Impossible. Impossible. So what was really going on? So he explains the following. It was a fundamental, it was an ideological debate. What was the lifestyle like in the Midbar? What was the lifestyle like in the Midbar? The lifestyle in the Midbar was a kola lifestyle. Kolo. What was the Kolo lifestyle? Do you need to serve in the army? Do you need to be in the police? Do you need to be a member of the Shomrim? No, the Ananiyaka would protect you. You're good to go. got the ultimate alarm system. Hashem is watching over you. Do you need to be a farmer who works the land, who plants and harvests and breaks her back and burns in the sun? No. You're hungry. You collect the money. You want it to taste like General Tzau's. You want it to taste like pizza. You want it to taste like whatever you want. You got it. If you're thirsty, do you need to dig a hole and search for water and schlep up from a well? You're thirsty. You got the bear in the middle of the desert. You got the be- In the middle of the desert, you got water. May, Eden, whatever you want to drink, you're good to go. So what were they doing in the Midbar? You don't have to work. You don't need a police force. You don't need an army. You don't need a judicial system. You don't need an agricultural system. You don't need... You don't have a government. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're sitting and learning Torah. Hashem had just given the Torah to Moshe. Moshe is teaching the Torah, and the entire existence in the midbar is a spiritual existence. It is the pursuit of the spiritual. The physical, the material is all provided, is all taken care of from Hashem. It's very simple. So these Nisim, these heads of the tribes who served as these spies, said, We're going to go into Israel. What's life going to be like in Israel? There goes the Ananiya there goes the Man, there goes the Be'er. What's life like in Israel? We've got an army, and we all, they already anticipated then what the fight's going to be. Do you leave Yeshiva, do you leave the kol to serve in the army? Well, someone's got to protect us because there's enemies all around. So there will be no Yeshiva, there will be no kol, there will be no learning, if no one's protecting us because there's enemies who want to destroy us, and we don't have those Ananiya Kavu to rely on anymore. And what are we going to do for food? Well, Angel's Bakery can make amazing rugalach, but someone's <laughs> got to plant the wheat and then harvest it and grind it and knead it and bake it, who's going who's gonna to be the farmer with the farmers in the fields? Who's going to do it? The plaza's got a great omelet station at its breakfast, but somebody's got to have all those hens and roosters and chickens and chicken coops and get the eggs. We're going to do some really strange thing. We'll put milk in a bag, but somebody's got to milk the cows to put the milk in the bag. So they said to themselves, what are we, crazy? We're going to go into... Israel and give up the Kolel and have to go to work? Forget about it. We'll tell them come back and we'll give this negative report and we're gonna stay in the midbar. It was a very noble intent. It wasn't self-centered, it wasn't egotistical, it wasn't that they didn't want to yield or give up the power, they wanted another term. It was very noble intent, but it was miscalculated. And why was it miscalculated? Because what the Rebona Shalom wants from us here on earth is not to disengage from the material and physical. It's not to live a spiritual by transcending the physical. It's to engage the physical, to transform and to elevate it into spiritual. In Eretz Yisrael, is Rav Govech, the only place on earth that you have something called mitzvos hateluyos ba'aretz, and maisros, tithing the fruit and the produce. Mitzvos hateluyos ba'aretz means that the soil, the earth, the dirt, the most physical, the most material, the most lowly substance becomes holy where? When I tend my garden in Boca, I don't have a garden. If I had a garden and I tended it in Boca, is it a mitzvah? No, it's a hobby. Enjoy the red pepper. Enjoy the tomato in your salad. Fresh, homegrown, no pesticides, organic. Enjoy it. But is it a mitzvah? Is it a holy tomato? Absolutely not. But the farmer in Eretz Yisroh, who's going to observe Shemitah and Shumos and Maisros and Orla and Kilei HaKerem. And that farmer who's observing all these mitzvos with the soil, with the earth, with the ground, with the dirt, they're mitzvos hatzluyos ba'aretz. What the Rebona wants from us is to do mitzvos hatzlios ba'aretz, to take the physical world and transform it into the spiritual, to make it a holy place, to make it a holy place. And so that's why he was so devastated. Not just because of their yearning to stay in the land, in, in the desert. Not just because they rejected his promise that don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But because of this ideological, fundamental debate. And says the Tzvah That's why the Torah gives us these three mitzvahs right after, right after the Chetamaragam. What are these three mitzvahs? They're all physical, mundane, material things that are transformed into spiritual by the way we use them. So, libations. You could take wine and you could become intoxicated, you could become drunk, you can go to a club which makes you so passed out, you miss the Shabbat and you're a terrible example to your children. You could misuse and abuse alcohol or you could take wine and it's a libation on the Mizbeach. You have elevated it, you transformed it into something which is holy. Bread. You could bake the bread Or you could take challah from it and make it something kadosh, make it something holy. Wool. You can knit another sweater. You can make tzitzis. And tzitzis become the mechanism, the instrument that brings you to the kiseh hakavod. Says the Tzvah these are not three random mitzvahs. These mitzvahs were chosen by design to tell us that we need to Atone for the chay The antidote to the mistake, the sin of the spies is to recognize that we are here to engage the physical world and transform it. Not to disengage, not to recoil, not to isolate, not to hide. Eretz Israel is the greatest vehicle on earth to do that. Eretz Israel is the land of that. If you're a policeman or a fireman, you serve in the army in Israel, you're doing a mitzvah. You're in the government, you're doing a mitzvah. You walk four amos in Israel. You're doing a mitzvah. You grow tomatoes and red peppers in your backyard. You're engaged in a mitzvah. It is the land of mitzvah. It's the bridge between heaven and earth is Israel. Boka is earth. Heaven is heaven. But the bridge between heaven and earth, where the physical is transformed from mundane and profane to holy and consecrated, that place is Eretz Israel Which is also why I don't want to take the time now. I probably won't be here. But it's why Moshe was not allowed to come into Israel. This is another one of my—I only have a handful of original ideas. This was one of them. Two in one year. Wow. Yeah. Why was Moshe not allowed into Israel? It wasn't a punishment. It was a reality. This is my theory. It's based on a midrash that Kodesh Baruch Hu tells Moshe, "You're going to be the leader," and he says, "Not me. Why not me?" Lo t'varim anochi. I'm not a man of words. I don't speak well. I'm not an orator. I can't lead the people. That requires public speaking. Not for me. Not for me. Hashem says, okay, not for you. By the way, the Medrash connects and says, Moshe's hesitation is why God says you can't come into into Israel. But Hashem recruits him, makes him the leader nonetheless. Fast forward 40 years, Parshas Chukas, and it's time to go into Israel and Moshe wants to lead them in. And what does Hashem say to Moshe? speak to the rock. And what does Moshe do? He hits the rock. And what does he reveal to Hashem? Has he learned the power of speech in those 40 years and beyond? He's still not a speaker. Because he doesn't employ the power of speech, he hits the rock. What is the power of speech? The Maharaj writes, speech is the bridge between the physical and the spiritual. We live here in the physical world, and we have thoughts about our life in the physical world, But how do we bring those thoughts into reality? How do we communicate? How do we transmit? The bridge between the physical and the spiritual is the power of speech. It's the union. It's the place that connects theory and concept with reality and with the world. Moshe, says the Ma'aral, Moshe was not a speaker. Why? That's not a criticism or it's not a negative. It's not disparaging Moshe. It's actually amazing praise of Moshe. Moshe was so spiritual, so disconnected from the physical world, that he, he struggled in the power of speech. Because the power of speech is that bridge between physical and spiritual. Moshe was so ruchni, so spiritual, he had, he had the speech impediment. He meant, I have an impediment to engaging the physical world. So spiritual, so holy, so transcendent, that he struggled to engage that physical world. And I would like to suggest what Kosh Baruch was telling Moshe is, when he said, Speak to the rock. Moshe says, I can't. That he hits the rock. But Hashem says, if you can't, then you were the right leader for the desert where there was a kolel, spiritual lifestyle. But as we're about to go into Israel, I need a Yehoshua. I need a leader who can speak. I need a leader who can connect the spiritual and the physical, who's relatable. I need a leader who understands that the purpose of life is integration, is synthesis between the spiritual and the physical. It wasn't a punishment for Moshe. After all he had done for the Reboni Shalom, for Klal Yisrael, because of one mistake he can't go in, and it's a mistake, by the way, that there are 50 suggestions what he did wrong. So unclear, the text never tells us what he did wrong exactly. The Rambam, he got angry, and others that he was arrogant, others that he took the credit, he said, you rebellious one. Everyone has their own suggestion. That's how unclear it is from the text what he did wrong. And my suggestion is, it's not that he did something wrong, it's that he showed Hashem that he was not the right fit to be the leader going into Israel. The Israel lifestyle, the Eretz Israel lifestyle would need someone new. So that was the mistake of the Meragam. Those are the three mitzvahs to get afterwards because they're a reminder. Wine, it could be used to intoxicate, it could be used for a libation. Challah, bread, it could be used to And get to indulge, it can be used for a mitzvah, chala. Wool, it can be used for the clothing. It could be competing for brands and fashion. It could be the mitzvah, these wool, the strings, the strings. Strings that, by the way, the Salaam Rebbe developed so beautifully, based on another medrash, like a person who's in the ocean, falls overboard in the ocean, and the waves are throwing him back and forth and threaten to take him out to sea or pull him under and drown. How do we save the person? We throw him a rope. And that's the image of the tzitzis. Hashem throws us a rope, and on the other side is emuna. If you add up all the twists and the knots, you get 613. Schaitem is ko hashem. You remember the mitzvos? Tzitzis is Hashem throwing us a rope, and when we hold on to it, when we hold on to emunah, then even when the world is throwing us around, and the waves are slapping us in the face, and the current is threatening to pull us under, if you hold on to that rope, the Rope of emuna, then you can get through. Okay, let's get to the section I want to study as we're almost out of time. Rabbi Moskowitz isn't here, so I have three hours now. Okay, we're going to start. We're, we'll just share a little bit. Perek Yud I'm sorry, Perek Yud Dalet. Perek Yud It's the top of page 808 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Hensh is here, so I call it the Stone Chumash today. Okay, this is right after Hashem forgave the people. He ostensibly forgave the people. But yet, He's about to tell them the decree. Hmm. How long, Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, how long for this Eida Hazos, this evil assembly, they provoke complaints against me. They instigated against me among the people. I've heard what my children have to say that they've provoked against me. I heard it. Let's read the whole thing, then we'll come back and analyze. <inaudible> Hashem, says, "Tell them." I swear. Rashi says Chayani is Hashem saying, "I swear." What is he swearing? <inaudible> what they spoke in my ear, what they said, what they were afraid of, is exactly what I'm going to do to them. <inaudible> In the wilderness, their carcasses will drop. Anyone who is twenty years old and, and over, who was part of this process, that provoked me, they're goners. They're going to die in the desert. None of them are coming in, with two exceptions: Kalev and Now, the truth is, the whole tribe of Levi was coming in; they didn't participate. And who else was coming in? Who's always the righteous one? The women, the women, and the children were coming in too. But twenty years old and male, non-Levim, you're all goners. You're going to die in the midbar. They used to dig their own grave and lie down in it in anticipation. Says Hashem, your young children who you said they'll be taken captive, I'll bring them in. They're going to know my land. Hashem asked, you despised it, you denigrated it. They're going to get to know it. U pigrechem but your lowly carcasses, your gonners. U vnechem yu Your children will be roim. What are roim? Shepherds. Shepherds. They will roam for forty years. as and they will bear yours nus. What's nus? Atom pigrechem ba midbar. Hashem is pretty hung up on this carcasses. And how did Hashem arrive at 40 years? Why 40 years? The number of days that you toured the land, 40 days, yom a day for every year. 40 years, you will, you will know. You will know that you, the consequence of having instigated against me. I have spoken. So, in fact, while 40 years he gave to the rest of the nation, the spies themselves, these 10 died of a terrible plague right then and there. But the exception of two, Yeshua and they were the only survivors of those who had gone to investigate the land. Okay, let's go back and look now. So Hashem says, Hazos. Hashem gives a name to this group. What does he call them? Ada Hara Hazos. This evil Eida. What's an Eida? An evil congregation says Rashi, From here we know that a congregation in Eida is made up of how many? Ten. Why ten? Extract Kalev and Yahshua. They were good. The rest of these were the ten. And from here we learn, we derive the whole origin of the concept of a minion. How do you know you need a minion of men in order to say, Dvar Kadish Dusha, Kaddish Kedusha and the like, Borchu. From here, how do you know it's ten? Ada hara hazos. Hashem chooses to call these an Ada, a congregation, a minion. How many were in them? Ten. So you know that it takes ten to be a minion. Rav Moshe points out something amazing from here. Says Rav Moshe, you see what you learn from here. Hashem Ada hara. Hashem derives a minion not from ten sadikim. He derives a minion from ten Rishayim. These wicked people who miscalculated, whose ideology was distorted, was perverted, was wrong, who came back and tried to mislead the people and caused this hysteria and led to this great consequence. They were so wrong. And yet, this is where we derive the concept of a minion from. Writes are Moshe, in Igris Moshe, in a tshuva. The tshuva is lasar Can you count Machal Shabbos a minion? Not somebody, Moshe wasn't likely talking about Machal shabbos. someone who grew up not knowing better, but a Machal shabbos. somebody who grew up knowing better and chose to be Machal shabbos. Can you count a Machal shabbos to a minion? So he says, (laughs) Asya toch toch mimaraglam shayukuli Yisrael kedepesh Rashi vahasam ayu kofram b'farhesiyah shigri mimachal HaShabbasos. If the meraglim are the whole source of a minion, and the meraglim denied or defied or rebelled against Hashem even more than a machal al Shabbos before Hesiah. They were kofrim before Hesiah, and yet they are the origin, they are the source of, of a minion, then certainly Paskins or Moshe, you can count the machal al Shabbos in a minion as well. So in a later tshuva, somebody says, but how can you say that, Ramosha? Moshe? I don't understand. Because why? We have the Torah in Orachayim, quotes from the Bahag. There's a takanah to fast on certain days of the year. And this takanah was accepted by Klal Yisrael, even though we haven't accepted it. None of you fast on these days. One of those days is Yud Zayin Elul. 17th of Elul. Anyone here fast on the 17th of Elul? No. Why would you fast on the 17th of Elul? The Torah quotes from the Bahag the Pasuk we just read that the 10 original spies who died of a plague immediately they didn't live the 40 years they didn't die at the end of the 40 years they died immediately when did they die? the 17th of Elul and we fast to commemorate their death and the question the Beis Yosef asks is why? Ask the Beis Yosef why would you fast to commemorate the death of Rishon? so concludes the Beis Yosef concludes the Beis Yosef, They tried to do Tshuva, but their Tshuva wasn't accepted. Maybe they tried to do Tshuva, so we fast to honor their effort that they tried to do Tshuva, but their Tshuva wasn't accepted. So Moshe was asked, based on this Beis Yosef, and the whole notion that we fast for them, that maybe, maybe they were Balai Tshuva, and maybe that's why we learn Minyan from them. We're learning Minyan that you could always come back so, how could you, Moshe, passim Machal shabas could be part of a minion from the fact that we derive minion from the meraglim? They were Rasha'im. Maybe they weren't Rasha'im, They did tshuva. So, Moshe dedicates another tshuva. Binyan a meraglim a tarich divrei dvarai beigres Moshe in earlier, and he writes, "Shavada ha yirishayim gemurim bekfirah biyicholus Hashem Yisburach vahavtachaso." The gam baasas of adochah she'en lamed alems chus, but They were a mesesum ediyach. They didn't just sin themselves. They instigated it for others. They were for sure rashaim. Even if they did shuva, it doesn't make them tzaddikim. So that's not why we're fasting. So why are we fasting? He gives another reason, and he defends his psak, that a Mechal Shabbos, even the Hesia, can be part of a minion. You see this from the Meragam. From the but the question still lends itself, or begs itself. Why in the world would you learn the concept of a minion from these Meragam? From these miragum? So Dr. Yitzhak Belazan, for whom our base Medrash is named, used to be very fond of saying, I don't know if this also came from Rav Goldberg. I think it did, that the pshat is the following, a very, very beautiful idea. The Maraglin were wrong. Their ideology of a Kola lifestyle permanently was wrong. You get a Kola lifestyle. You know, if, if somebody wants to learn when they get married or learn for a few years, they should be supported. It's beautiful. What an, ad, what an ambition, what a drive to want to learn. It's incredible. But as long as they have a plan, they're going to come into their Eretz Yisrael, and they're going to participate, contribute, integrate with the world. That's what Hashem wants of them. That's the mission. That's the goal. You get a midbar lifestyle, but it's got a deadline. It expires. It's not permanent. It's not endless. The Miraglim were wrong. Our mission is not to disconnect from the world. Our mission is not to withdraw. Our mission is not to transcend. It's to engage the world and transform and to elevate it. They were wrong. But said, Rav Goldvich, three times a day they were right. When were they right? Shacharis, Mincha, and Marv. When you daven, you're not thinking about the stock market. You're not thinking about your customers. You're not thinking about your email and your phone calls you have to return. When you're davening, you're not at the gym or in the supermarket. You're not thinking about the physical material world. Three times a day the Meraglim were right. They were wrong altogether. You can't be in kola permanently. You need a plan. You got to enter your Eretz Yisrael. Hashem wants us a world of synthesis and integration. They were wrong. But three times a day, they're right. When we daven, you leave your phone in the car. When you daven, there is nothing in this world. All there is, is the ribonish The ideology and mass on the whole writ large is wrong. But the ideology three times a day when we daven, and that's why he suggested it, Hey, buddy. That's why he suggested we dafka learn, we learn the concept of a minion dafka from Meraglim because three times a day they were right. There was so much I wanted to share with you. It's beautiful Svarno here and the Ramban and the Kliyakar. We didn't actually get through these at all. But apparently we're going to stop here. Right? Okay. All right. Have a great day, everyone. See you next week.